Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Quarteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. We are recording once again. Boy, these weeks just fly by, I find. Don't you? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Time definitely flies. I can't believe that January is gone already. Sometimes I feel like a teacher with this group, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you say something and you just get these nods. <laughs> yeah, not even nods. You just get like... Uh, yes, Mrs. <laughs> Hankel. <laughs> I'm not Mrs. Hankel. I'm Ms. Hankel. I'm sorry, Ms. Hankel. I'm an old man. Leave me alone. <laughs> the old man madam hinkle will lead us in a discussion there you go uh, 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 all right class today's topic is we'll get to that in a minute uh, oh 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 he jumped right on that didn't he <laughs> all right he spoiled the opening but that's all right we can go with it so that's bill sutton that you heard it hey annette i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group also here is Joe Shaw. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us is Tom Gogola. And Tom is one of our amazing reporters. And Tom's he's got a knack for snooping out like really interesting stories, I find, that I, I don't know if they're on anybody else's radar, but um, I don't know. I always find that, Tom, that you come up with some really interesting, interesting um, things to chase down. So how are you, Tom? I'm great, Annette. Thank you for that. You know, there's a, a risk involved with that, that you can fall flat on your face when you do those kinds of stories. So I uh, appreciate the uh, feedback. I guess you could also find a car following you at all hours of night on dark roads. Which is, <laughs> that ever happened to you? Have you ever gotten tailed for a story that you've written or doxed? No, but I was doxed by the Oath Keepers in California and had threats. Oh, you were? Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. I did an article about them like six or seven years ago and they uh, were not happy about it. And uh, which, which group was that? The Oath Keepers. Ah. The January 6th boys. Is that why you came back to the East Coast? It, 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 uh, it was, you know, one of the reasons, yes. Wow. This pretty hot. Boy, that's another podcast we can talk about. So, well, good to have you with us, Tom. Thank you. It's good to be here. This topic, I think, is fascinating. And, you know, this is the changing landscape of the cannabis business on the um, East End and throughout New York State. And um, recently, the state notified Southampton Town that more than two dozen applicants have applied for cannabis licenses. And um, we have we have a map up on our website and in our paper, which I find it's kind of fascinating. It's all these all these what feels like random locations from Hampton Bays all the way out to Bridgehampton, because, of course, you know, you're soon be getting out of Southampton town at that point. But to some of them just seems so entirely random. And I think in your story, you mentioned one of them was even a empty field or a, a lot, a vacant lot. Is that is that right? Correct. That is um, there is one applicant who had. Um, so why don't we just maybe we start from the beginning here? Sure. So as uh, as listeners may know that, you know, Southampton town opted into the legal cannabis regime um, when when um 
the, the, the law passed in New York State a couple years ago. And then numerous of the villages um, in, Ham in Southampton Town opted out. So what has happened since then is a very slow and bulky process that um, has been, you know, the recipient of a lot of criticism from folks about the rollout in New York State, how bulky it has been. Um, and the big emphasis in New York has been on making sure that the first licenses go to what they're, I guess, sort of loosely referred to as equity um, applicants and also people who have been touched by the criminal justice system in some way because of cannabis. So that's the sort of first round. So what has happened is, and we'll just use the one that was already out there um, first and then talk about some of the other ones was we wrote an article in the fall about a guy named Greg Connor who owns a Carvel in Bridgehampton and was applying for um, a dispensary license there. And he has applied for that. He's also applied for it three different ways under three different LLCs using his wife as the sort of person who is the actual applicant. Um, and that allows him to get a little bit ahead of the curve by saying, oh, this person is a minority or female applicant, right? And so he was way ahead of the curve. So lo and behold, beginning in October, um, on the agendas of the town board meetings, it started to pop up that all these other people, entities, LLCs had been created and were also applying for cannabis licenses with the Office of Cannabis, cannabis Management up in Albany. And what was interesting when I started to sort of pick apart who are these people and what are they doing is there's, there's about two dozen, um, uh, well, there's about 15 places identified, but there's close to 30 applicants over those. And that's because other people also created multiple LLCs as a way to try to kind of throw as much, I mean, just loosely to throw as much against the wall as possible and hope that one of your, your applications um, in this lottery system that they have um, kind of moves it to the, you know, closer to the top of the list as the state is considering who to dole out the licenses to. So the one that you're referring to that field, that is actually um, part of applications also that were put in by the folks who own the managing partners at Kalisa, which is a restaurant. And there were several LLCs created that would, that have fun names like very Southampton-y names, you know, like Bronson and Johannes. I mean, I don't remember them offhand, but they all had these very kind of, you know, she-she kind of names, almost sounded like law firms. And as I'm looking up the LLCs for these, I realize it's all the same guy. And mm. so that that's sort of the story here. So what happens with these applications is you put in your application and then up in Albany, there's basically, it's a lottery system and it's, um, and you get higher up based on what boxes you can check off. So one of the, re and one of those boxes is having a brick and mortar space to actually put the facility in while you're applying. It's not mandatory. You can have a license without that, um, but you would have a year to find a place after getting the license. Um, otherwise your license would be revoked. Uh, that space doesn't have to be anywhere near where you applied either, right? I mean, it has to be in the town and on the right corridor, but it wouldn't have to be on the location, the address given for the application. That is what the um, what I heard from one of the applicants. He said, you know, and this is, you know, that the, the likelihood of an actual store winding up in one of the addresses that this applicant put in was is very small. But as kind of a placeholder, this is what they offer to the state as a possible brick and mortar in order to try to, you know, for, so for example, like Greg Connor, who owns the Carvel, 
he gets it. He gets a check mark because he owns the real estate that he's going to use, plus another check mark for the minority stuff. So he he feels like he's kind of you know ahead of the curve, and he also feels like he's ahead of the curve because of some of the restrictions that they have in the in the local code, which reflects the state code, which is you can't be putting more than one of these facilities within you know couple you know, thousand feet of of each other or something like this so he's essentially created a buffer zone where nobody else in that area of bridgehampton can come forward the problem for connor is and for everybody who has applied really manifested at a recent uh or mid-december uh hearing before the planning board where connor's proposals pre-site um application came forward and you know the the comments running for and against were I mean, it was like 10 to one, you know, like the people out there and the, the irony that a lot of people raised, including the civic activists. 10 to one against or 10 to one for? 10 to one against. Yeah. And, um, you know, and Pamela Harwood, who's a big civic activist in Bridgehampton, pointed out, as did others, that having just created this historic district in Bridgehampton, they now are faced with the prospect of at one end of this historic district, just at the end of it there is going to potentially be a place uh, at the old Carvel called Bud Hampton and people just not happy about the name uh, and, and other stuff. And there's just not a lot of spots in, in Southampton town where these can land, right? I mean, it took the, the, the town spent a year and a half, two years or, or, or more figuring out where these dispensaries could, could be. And I think there's a very limited number of locations right where 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 these could actually pop up That's absolutely correct bill so you know there had been a consideration of light industrial at one point but what that would have meant when they looked at it on paper was that there was literally one existing building that could have um that could have uh met the zone that zoning um designation ultimately what the t the town did was they did it as a highway business and also um you know strip mall stuff like that along the highway so that's why you see all of these are being proposed along Montauk Highway and in business corridors along along the highway. And I have to say, I, I suspect that when we're talking about a historic district in Bridgehampton, that has more to do with the appearance of the buildings than their use. And I'm not sure that just because you have a more modern use like selling marijuana, that it will preclude it from being part of a historic district. Absolutely. And, and technically speaking, Joe, the, the, the Carvel is not within the historic mm -hmm. district. This is more about the aesthetics and the, the community saying this is not what our community it, We don't want this to be the first thing people see. So I'm going to just raise a couple of other ironies about all this that are very particular to Southampton town because of the Shinnecock nation. So let's say that, um, that, you know, one or another of these applicants gets the green light, gets the license from the state and now goes before the town, town planning board and, you know, goes to that whole rigmarole. Maybe they get to build it, maybe they don't. But one thing that the town can't do under the state law is use zoning to, you know, to preclude people from, they can't use zoning as a, as a sword and a shield. They can't say, Oh, we're going to, we're going to zone you people so that you can, there's no way anybody can come in here. So having opted in, you, you have to make the accommodation one way or the other. But the issue that kind of came up in all this was, you know, at the Shinnecock nation, there are maybe eight, 10 more places right now that are selling cannabis, none of which have a state license. Right. 
They're not required to have a state license, we should say. Correct. Not required to have it. So one of the things that is also part of the OCM, the state <clears throat> office of cannabis and management, it says, look, if, if you put one in, in a community of one dispensary, and then over time, you're like, this really isn't enough to satisfy the demand. You can then call yourself an underserved community for cannabis and then maybe get, maybe get a second one. The irony is that because the that's within the state apparatus, the Shinnecock stuff is totally left out of that. So, and this probably won't ever happen, but there is a possibility that down the road, somebody could say, gee, we only have one place to buy pot in Southampton. It's not enough. We need another state licensed dispensary. Meanwhile, all you have to do is drive to the Shinnecock facilities and there's all the cannabis you could ever mm. want. So there's peculiarities and ironies to be sort of sorted out. And um, and I also, my understanding of how the law works is just because there's all of these dispensaries already there, that's not a sufficient reason to say, guess what, Southampton, you already have enough of this. You know, these folks still have every right to come forward and make an application for a state-sanctioned, state-licensed dispensary. And I'm guessing the reason that Southampton Town opted in is because they knew that they would, the Shinnecock businesses would take all of the, would get all that revenue? Oh, I mean, the infamous comment that, that opponents like to use from Jay Schneiderman, the former town supervisor in Southampton, is he just did not want to give all that tax revenue and all that potential. Yeah, is that is that, is that accurate at all? I mean, on paper, it's accurate, sure. Mm. I mean, there's yeah, the town the town gets no tax benefit from any of the the uh, Shinnecock territory exactly. smoke shops, so right. they would get from from in within the town limits. When this all started coming up, you know, the Shinnecock were talking about one medical dispensary nobody had ever was was ever, was talking about um you know the 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 individual smoke shops selling cannabis um which came a little later so i think that was part of the the motivation too i think i think everybody knew that that it was going to be a bit of a foot race um which the the Shinnecock mm. you know obviously won um but but i don't i don't think anybody envisioned you know uh, 10 to 12 smoke shops selling cannabis on on the, on the Shinnecock territory. Exactly. And nobody ever envisioned either at the town level, you know, 10 or 12 operating along Montauk Highway. It was always going to be like, right. we'll be lucky if we get one, maybe two. Maybe there'll be a dispensary and an on-site consumption lounge that has been in the air as well. In fact, one of the applications is for some former club that's no longer there, I think at the edge of the village, but in the un unincorporated part. But you also see from these applications that not, and this was kind of interesting reporting this was, you know, some of these folks are, are, are out of town. There's a California company that's in here. So, you know, one of the applications is to put one in, in West Hampton, which has opted out. So there's all, there's a, there's a sort of a, you know, a gap. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be in the village, right? I mean, the village opted out, but there's unincorporated West Hampton, which is outside the village. Correct. They say it's according to Tom's ar uh, article. It, it says that that one is applying for seventy six North Summit Boulevard in West Hampton. Is that in the Village Bill? Do you know? I, I don't know offhand. I looked it up on the map. It said it was. So, I but you also said Tom that that where these addresses are really placeholders, right? It could be a, a site outside of West Hampton exactly. Beach Village. But yeah. if that placeholder address is in a village that doesn't allow it, it like that would sort of start to like you know really defeat your chances of getting a license i'm you know i don't know maybe. Well, if somebody were to <laughs> not know enough about what's going on here and say wow this address looks great and you know yeah. down village of southampton that would be automatically rejected because the village of southampton has opted out right 
It's also possible that the owners live in the village, but the shop would be outside the village, which probably is legal. And Tom, I, I really want to stress something you said earlier, which is 20, uh, you know, two dozen applications in Southampton town, but these are placeholder applications. There, there's really not a proposal for two dozen smoke shops per se. I mean, I guess in theory there is, but there's no way that's going to come to pass. There's no way that's going to happen, Joe. I mean, they have to, they're going to be parceling these out. And I forgot what the number is, forgive me, but I think it's something like 7,000 of these licenses across the state. So the idea that a place like Southampton that already has eight that are, you know, the Shinnecox, you know, it's unlikely that they'll, you know, and, and Schneiderman, to his credit, had said that all along, even though he came under a lot of fire for whatever his personal reasons may or may have not have been for really being uh, a proponent, really, of um, bringing this business to to Southampton. And I remember those early hearings when they were trying to say, we're going to zone this out of here. He was like, you can't do that. The law is the law. And we have to accommodate this. We don't have to open up the whole town to 20, you know. 28 new, you know, pot stores and, you know, all the issues that come along with that. But you certainly have to um, follow the state law once you opt in. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Porteraro, providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. SuffolkLaw.com. 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. There's another factor at play here, which is the Cannabis Control Board in Albany, which has not been a well-oiled machine. They have they they recently uh, postponed action on, I believe it was on growing pot. They have some regulations for growing pot at home, and they were supposed to take action on on a couple of hundred applications, I think, and still have not done that. They have really been slow to act on on the pace that I think the state government was hoping that they, the state government, I think was hoping they would have handed out permits by now. And they, they have not been doing that very quickly. Right. And not to, you know, not to throw any, you know, huzzahs at the state, but let's not forget that once they passed the law here, it was a free for all in New York city and elsewhere where people were just going hog wild and just open up stores and I, you know, I believe really what happened here. And then you have to also factor in there was a lawsuit filed by a veteran that um, gummed up the the licensing process for the the um, social equity folks, which are veterans, women, people who are touched by the drug drug wars, you know, uh, other members of other minority um, groups and stuff like that. And that kind of gummed it up. And my and I don't really want to get too into the weeds here because it's a little arcane, but. According to a couple of the people that I spoke to reporting this, who were the applicants, basically when that lawsuit was filed, the state went back to other people who were trying to, you know, keep doing this and said, listen, while this is going on, and again, we'll go back to the original, you know, metaphor here, just throw as much against the wall as you can, you know, and they essentially, the state essentially kind of tacitly said, 
don't worry about the address part of it. It's don't get too wrapped up in that. Just keep, you know, keep trying to move this process forward, even as we're trying to sort out the issues with this lawsuit. That's my general understanding of some of the reasons why you're seeing these uh, multiple uh, applications at, at at places where there may never actually be a cannabis store proposed at you know at all. And the, so the, the creation of multiple LLCs by one applicant, that's just a, um, if hoping that if one doesn't fly, the other one might. Pretty much. If we get if we get two of these in Southampton, that would probably be a lot, right? I mean, I don't. Do you see us getting like any more than two of these actual? No, as I said earlier, like I mean, Schneiderman has been very was very consistent about this all through. Like one, maybe two, mm -hmm. but number two might wind up being something more of a boutique type of a deal. I mean, you have, I mean, let's face it, you have like you know, restaurants that want to get into this business, you have retail that wants to be selling, you know, edibles, but not necessarily be a pot store. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole culinary element to this. There's a whole farming element to all of this. That's all these very you know, different pieces of this moving picture that, uh, yes, clearly has not synced up the way I think people had thought or hoped it would when the state laid out this framework they would almost have have to find a, a niche locally because you're competing with with um you know the shinnecock who aren't going to have to pay the state taxes so their product is is going to be um cheaper. you know more more affordable and cheaper so um i mean if you are going to have a, a business um you know in the town i i would think that that you're going to try to appeal to a higher end clientele i don't know what that looks like necessarily but maybe it is but i also wonder like the shinnecock shops are those since they're not collecting taxes or anything like that are is the pot that they're selling regulated like do we know where it comes from which i think will probably be a requirement for the state-sponsored stores you know that's the other thing if someone is worried about strength and not knowing what they're getting you know it may be that a state-sanctioned property would be better for them so the tribal government has put in some regulations and they did say early on when we spoke to, you know, Chairman Polite and, and all that, as these were starting to pop up, that they were going to mimic, um, you know, state regulations only for, you know, for the for the tribe, for the territory. I, I, I don't know if that includes, um, you, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the, the quality of the cannabis is there, but I, I imagine if if they you know they're going to compete with each other, so you you know you're you're not going to want you know something that's that's dangerous or ineffective or or whatever in one shop if if the shop next door is is selling a you know uh, a better product. I I would imagine the market would take care of some of that. Sure. Yeah, I just know that a lot of like having been visited a couple of these stores like out in Colorado, it's just it's very precise, very scientific. And very, they know exactly right. what they're selling you, what the THC content is. And you know what I mean? Like, not that they don't do that down on, on those other shops, but, um, and then, you know, they weigh everything. They put the state, sim like the state um, labeling on it and they seal it. You know what I mean? It just has that, um, that. Well, again, that may be the more high end, you know, you may, yeah. you may see that appealing to the higher end clientele who, who want all those, you know, bells and whistles rather than just a, a package of you know cannabis flower or, or 
you know, whatever. So the other thing I thought was interesting is that I feel like the Connor application, like he, you know, he's got a lot of reasons that he's probably way ahead of the game. Not only that he owns his own property, the property where he wants to put this, it's in the right area. But also, um, as I read in your story, that he's talking about working with Bridgehampton growers to even like almost make it a, a farm to bong um, product, which I thought's a great term, but you know, like that, that, that just, I don't know if that counts uh, as, as points for the state, but I mean, I feel like the regulators would see that. And, you know, rather than these LLCs that are coming from the West coast or Massachusetts, that have absolutely no connection here. It seems to me, if I was a regulator, I would say, you know, Connor is the one who's, sure. you know, he's actually turning it into a, a, an idea that might involve the farmers who are growing it out here. I think a couple of the other ones are trying to, mm-hmm kind of do that same thing. I think the guy from Kalisa with that open field, I think that's, you know, he didn't say as much, but it's an empty lot. I mean, there's no proposal to build anything there. So it's it's that that is definitely up in the air as far as what happens with that piece of land and how that gets uh, adjudicated. Well, I mean, they they would need licenses to grow it though too, right? I mean, that's a whole different, Correct. that's a whole different animal. Remember too, that it's still against federal law to move marijuana across state lines. So you have to basically um, generate the, the, you have to grow the marijuana in the state where you're going to sell it. Unless you're Shinnecock, because remember they, they talked about this once, I think on one of our earlier shows that the interstate commerce laws don't apply to them because it's tribal trading. That's correct. And I think that may be true as well. Yes, that might be the loophole that they're taking advantage of. Look, but you, Joe, you may also have big cannabis who's willing to take that chance. I mean, the you know, and 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 ship it in. I mean, I mean, I mean, is the FBI is the FBI going to really come in and and bust a you know a truckload of a, a pot? I, I think that you see that law enforcement doesn't really care much anymore about cannabis, and I imagine that even though the federal laws are are still there. I don't see that getting enforced very much. Sure. Well, it might have been. I've heard about like if you drive through Alabama or something, you know, from Colorado, you are looking at. Yeah. A pro- you know, I mean, there's other states that I think would be happy to enforce it, even if it's not New York. I, I, if, well, if it's not legal in those states. Sure. Key point, though, too, Bill, I don't know if you heard the news last week. I, a committee for the FDA recommended taking marijuana off of the schedule one. Uh, at the federal level, which probably would be a first step towards revising the federal laws as well. I mean, I think the writing's on the wall. So many states have have now legalized marijuana that it's going to get harder and harder to justify that that federal ban. And actually, that federal ban makes it more likely that you're going to see both violations and you're going to see uh, smaller. There's going to be less yeah. competition. Let's put it that way yeah. um, in in the different states that allow it. Yeah, it feels like it should be a state a state issue and not not a federal issue anymore. But remember, too, you know, well, the um, and there is some you know intrigue with the with the descheduling or unscheduling because there have been proposals to just completely take it off of that scheduling um, out of that ma- metric altogether. But then there's other proposals which seemingly would make it more cannabis friendly. Um, but but if you schedule cannabis on the order of um, opioids and stuff like or like um, um, other drugs besides these sort of top line cocaine and heroin, which it is now, you're actually opening up the door to um, pretend. But some of the critics have said this to actually more of a, a, a for the the government to actually have more power to crack down um, because you scheduling cannabis now on a par with cocaine. It never made any sense. It was just so. 
out of balance. It's a vestige of, you know, mm -hmm. the reefer madness and all the rest of that stuff. So, um, but if you then, if, but if you kind of validate that there is a, there are, you know, issues with the, with the drug and you need to keep it scheduled, you might actually create a, a way for the federal government to step in and start, you know, throwing its weight around in terms of law enforcement uh, when it comes to cannabis. Hi, this is Ellen Duogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you. Is there any discussion, like, uh, are these new stores that are opening up, are they supposed to source their product from within New York State? Is that a is that a requirement at all? Part of the whole rollout here was to encourage, you know, New York State farmers to get involved here. So, um, so I think that that is, you know, very much that first three pronged licensing thing for the, the the cultivators, the processors, and the and the retail folk. Okay, that is all kind of the single stool that everyone if these things happen together. Then we have this equitable, fair rollout with all of the pieces kind of moving together at the same time. The problem was that the lawsuit from the guy from the military guy kind of put that piece the, the retail part of it on hold and then yeah. those other pieces also on hold Ooh. while they sort of sorted that out so what was his argument what was his suit about oh now you're putting me on the spot but <laughs> basically that it wasn't as equitable as uh advertised essentially oh, okay so, got it yeah, yeah like and some of this has to do with you know the i mean you got to be honest here and say okay you know, you have a certain amount, you do have a certain number of people in the state of New York who have been touched by the war on drugs in some way. And then maybe their parents did time and or maybe they did time or they had some tickets back in the day. But the requirements to uh, to qualify there aren't just because you have a record. You actually have to have a show that you're like have a business already. So the number of people in that category, you know, as a proportion of the number of people who would like to get into this industry is probably very small. I mean, if you just took a number, not that they're not important people to, you know, to um, keep in mind here, but it's just, you know, this is a small pool of people to put at the very front of the line. And that, you know, my somewhat good understanding of all this is that really slowed things down for everything else. And that's why you hear all this talk about, oh, the rollout's been a disaster. I wouldn't characterize it as a disaster. You know, the word that people love to use is bulky. Well, these things are going to be bulky. It's the nature of these kinds of large, you know, kind of public policy shifts and stuff like that. My goodness, let's take a step back for a second and think about what we're talking about and whether even five years ago, if we would have foreseen this being the, I mean, I mean, the, the, the quickness with which this has changed both in New York state and nationally is, is pretty breathtaking. It really is. And you can really appreciate why some folks out here who are of a more, and I'm going to use the lower C conservative bent, you know, a little bit suspect of too much change too quickly. 
they really do have a, a, a good point about this stuff. And especially, like you said, given the rapidity here of the rollout, and I also think a lack of public uh, education about stuff. I mean, that's where our, that's what our role has been is to produce articles, you know, over the last year or so that highlight different issues here. Um, you know, some of the issues have to do with the packaging and the, you know, and not having uh, packaging that's uh, going to be kid friendly. I mean, these are big issues that, you know, are many that are, and there's a ton of them that are associated with this rollout. And that's, you know, that's one of them. I also worry about like the, I mean, this is something I think that's always been a fear is these giant corporations who are dealing with cannabis in other states where it's already well established would just come in here and roll over the little players, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I went to, I went to the big cannabis conference uh, that they had in East Hampton two summers ago, and it was remarkable to see like these hedge fund bazillionaires get up there. You know, I smoke pot every day. I'm a hedge fund bazillionaire. This is a great. And I mean, it was kind of shocking and stunning to see people up there. Yeah. What's the big deal? And uh, I met a guy there who was a hedge fund guy. He's like, you know, I gave up drinking 10 years ago and I've been smoking pot ever since. And I'm going to do whatever I can to you know, make sure that this is a, a great and thriving business out on the East End. Of course, this happened in East Hampton, which mm-hmm. opted out. So none of that business was going to come to East Hampton. But I'm um, sure there's a lot of big money in the background, big canna, as they call it. And, you know, California had to deal with it when they did their rollout. Um, they tried to, you know, limit the amount of that kind of money that was coming in for five years, but that didn't take. And, you know, kind of the whole rollout there got taken over by big canna and all those kind of big players. So Southampton's the only of the East End towns that have um, opted in. Riverhead. Riverhead has. And I believe, oh. just just to be clear... The terminology is the terminology is that they did not opt out. Right. I, I don't know that they actually opted in. Oh, okay. But in, in Riverhead, they've been going back and forth and back and forth about the same as, as Southampton was about locations and where these where these stores would be allowed. And there are opponents um on, on those on the town board, or there have been opponents on the town board who um who made it very difficult. And I think you know, to date, they, they've identified like two or three spots in the entire town of Riverhead where conceivably um, a, a dispensary could could be located. And I think there there might they might ease ease up on on those you know zoning restrictions at some point. But right now, I think it's st- it's still a, a big battle. Sure, and just just go a little bit west into Brookhaven, which opted in, but with a very big caveat, which is that you can only put these in industrial zone areas, which means. Yeah, in Brookhaven, basically, you're going to be near the dump, the town dump, basically. So, well, so I know this is probably a really stupid question, but do all of the owners of the properties on your 15 um, site list of cannabis applications, did they all are they all involved in the application? Do they even know these people are using their addresses? Well, I didn't get enough uh, of a deep dive on all of them, but the ones I did mm-hmm. were, yes, that they are owners of the property or have some connection to the property. Okay. Couple, I just but, wondered if people were driving by buildings and saying, oh, that would work. We're going to no, put that on the app. That may be actually what did happen in a couple of these cases. Oh. There's one Because oh. there was one in the article that was, uh, I believe, a, church, a former church and maybe out, right outside of Hampton Bay. I think. Yeah, yeah, I saw that and one. And two separate, you know, applicants that said we're going to use this as the as the brick and mortar so yeah which is kind it's of a little odd another, you know? another one wants to put one right in the corner there of um forgive my pronunciation of Ponquag uh road and the highway right right in the middle of downtown like the actual 
Hampton, of Hampton Bay's downtown. And Hampton Bay's, I, I think, um, has the a lot of the folks involved in civics there don't want to see marijuana shops at all in Hampton Bay's. And I that, that sure. you know, as a resident of Hampton Bay's, I've got to say that may not be feasible because I think it's going to make a lot of sense. Um, and and yeah. it's you know when the town's looking at possible locations for these places. Uh, a shopping area like Hampton Bay's is sort of the right which place for it. Some somewhat removed from from the uh, from the Shinnecock territory. Too. It is, and away from it's, schools, it's, and away, you know, it, you know, it's it sort of fits the bill in a lot of ways. That'll be a big discussion down the road. I, I can't see that you're going to have any community groups that are going to be eager for these, you know, in, in their backyard, you're going to see a lot of nimbyism, you know, as, as they start to, uh, to, to pop up. I don't see anybody embracing it. Well, also, I think it's just going to exacerbate the issues that already exist there with Hampton Bay's civic uh, leaders feeling like their Hamlet is a dumping ground. Yeah. What's interesting to me though, is, and, and again, I'm just saying this as an observer from the outside, those uh, shops, on Shinnecock territory have now been selling marijuana for a while now. And I don't think we're seeing, you know, the kinds of negative impacts that people are predicting around the shops. I mean, there's, I mean, look, those shops are busy. Um, I drive past them. They are, but that's, it's fairly, it's fairly isolated there, Joe, too. It's not, but in what way? It's not, a, it's not a downtown business district. What would be the difference though? Because I think, People tend to go and pick up what they're buying at those shops and to go home with it. And and I'm not sure that'll be any different. I mean, I think that if you open cafes, yeah. like there's been talk about lounges and things like that. We haven't seen much of that yet um, on, on the South Fork. But even in those cases, I mean, how is that different from a bar? I mean, there are plenty of places that they're selling alcohol that are next door to other retail shops and and that doesn't really have an effect so i i agree with you i think it's it's growing pains sure and, it is. and there's going to be growing pains and and you know that's why there was a slow rollout it, it's just all you know and i think tom said it earlier it, it it's just um you know these things take take some time and people will have to get used to it and you know and all that and think about five years ago it would have been you know, you said that, Joe, it, it would have been inconceivable that we would be talking about mm -hmm. where to open cannabis shops and, you know, in Southampton town. And, and I got to tell you, society has not broken down in New York State since marijuana was legalized. I mean, there's some people who take, might have disagree with that. I, I mean, maybe so, but I, I yeah, look smell around. it everywhere, though. You smell, do it, smell it, but but I don't see the you know a lot of the negative impacts that a lot of people i think were concerned right. could come i mean i just don't see it i i maybe i'm blind and maybe i'm maybe i'm willfully missing something but uh it doesn't seem to me that that legalizing marijuana has really changed all that much of what was going on out there well, the demand was there before legalization joe right yeah, so exactly. it's not like people yeah. weren't getting their cannabis you know three four years ago in southampton or montauk or wherever i mean they used to talk about the plantation out and you know, Hither Hills, like there was actually a field out there. And, you know, this is not something new that like, hey, here we come with pot to the East End. You guys have never seen this before, but here you go. Like, just not the, it's just not the case. So, um, yeah, and, that, exactly. and that gets us into this other question, which is in other states or other regions where they don't have a, and it's, we're very much an outlier here where you have a, or, you know, where you have a 
an, an, uh, in a very enclosed area, a small area geographically, you have this vibrant cannabis economy already afoot. And whereas in other places, yeah. the bigger issue is not that, but the taxation issue essentially just, uh, you know, keeping the um, the black market alive. Like if you got to pay too much because of all the state taxes that they throw on, but you got your guy that's been going to for 20 years, you're going to keep going to the guy. And um, but the difference here is you get the st a store that opens up. You don't have to go to your guy. You can just go to the reservation if you think that this stuff is too pricey because of all the, the add on taxes and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I wonder if it's happening upstate where some of the others uh, other um, uh, Native American reservations. I, I imagine it's a similar situation up there. There was. And, you know, when um, I when I before my my brother died and he had um, died, died from cancer, I, I was up there. This is a couple of years ago now, I, I guess. And we went to um, we went to a, a store on a on a on a reservation up there. It wasn't. I don't know if I don't know if it was Seneca or it was, you know, one one of the, the Finger Lakes tribes up there. And and there was a and this was early on, after after legalization and and there was a huge um, you know dispensary there that that he was getting stuff to help him with um, you know with his mm. with his battle, you know there and it was uh, I mean it was packed I mean there were just you know cars and cars and cars and and it was everything you would expect a cannabis dispensary to be with different um, you know different uh, different flavors and, and and air quotes and you know different um strengths and gummies and um you know flour and all kinds of stuff so so i imagine that you know that was that was a few years ago and i imagine it's they've just sprouted up um you know all over up there pun intended i'm sorry pun intended and across the country too i was driving cross country you know four or five years ago and it was just remarkable that you know, I remember going to um, oh, what state was it? Maybe no, I, I forgot which state it was, but a lot of Native American, big state, uh, Liz Cheney's Wyoming. And I'm right, there's not going to be any. And you get to this town in Wyoming, and there's like the part of the town that is like the Native American part of town, and they got it all locked up in there. I mean, it's like there's a police station right next to the place mm -hmm. you go to buy the, the cannabis, and um. So, you know, other places have really, well, I mean, it's a, it's an opportunity. Sure. I mean, why, who wouldn't jump at it? Especially the federal government is kind of standing on the sidelines. I have news for you too. Pennsylvania, uh, recreational use of marijuana is not legal, but they did legalize uh, medical use. And I have friends in Pennsylvania. If you want to smoke marijuana, you get your, your marijuana through a medical you know, it's it's not complicated, and everybody. That's not just Pennsylvania. That's everybody. Yeah. That all the all the states, California, that that started with you know with medical dispensaries. That, that was always the big joke is is I, getting your card. It's just become so common. They just voted it in. It's legal mm -hmm. in Ohio now. Can you imagine? It's I've... yeah. It won't be long in Pennsylvania either. By the way, Tom, this raises a really interesting point, which is. Uh, you had mentioned that the state is promoting this as an agricultural, you know, it's an effort to, to sort of bolster farmers and stuff. But as folks out here will be quick to point out, greenhouse growing is a very different thing sure. from field crops. And, and that raises a whole bunch of new questions, because if you have big operations that want to grow on the East End, 
they're going to be talking about warehouses and they're going to be talking about greenhouses and those are not things that people are real excited to have prop prop you know cropping up well you you've got the the the, the big grow up in in riverhead that um mm-hmm. and it's all it's all interior stuff all greenhouse stuff are they growing are they growing pot up there bill yeah oh yeah big huge huge operation and, and that 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 operation is going to supply everybody I, I would imagine. Oh, interesting. Oh, I don't think it was local. I could be wrong about that. Well, I've been told that I I don't have a hundred percent you know verification that this is the case, but I have been told more than once that actually the soil out here is um, very amenable to growing cannabis, um, much more so than Humboldt County, which people in California, which people think of as like the ground zero in the United States for like the beginning of the cannabis industry. And the ironic thing about Humboldt is that it's actually very poor growing conditions Mm -hmm. for cannabis. And the folks who started growing there really were just trying to escape under the canopy. So they were already kind of outlaw types. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, since we're now under the canopy, we're under the radar, we're off the grid, we'll start growing pot. And, um, and that's how you got the legend of Humboldt County. It wasn't because, oh, this is the best spot in the world to grow this stuff, because it's really not. The soil's not great. And, and, and anecdotally, my former next door neighbor, Dave, uh, was was very happy with with the results of uh, of the, the three or four plants that he had in his backyard next door to me. Not his real name. <laughs> no, that was Dave. his real name. <laughs> he's, no. he's, he's, he has since passed, so I don't think we can, no, I don't I think he so. much cares. So it reminds me of that Cheech and Chong album. Remember that Dave? Open up. It's me, Dave. I've got the stuff. Dave. No, Dave's not here. Dave's not here, man. Well, anecdotally, I can share with you. I've seen some plants out in, you know, the Manorville, Medford area that are like giant trees. All right. So this stuff does really work. Wouldn't it be interesting if we end up having a terroir that's very good for uh, growing marijuana? You know, one of the other ironies about the rollout in New York was that when they were putting together the law here, they had the benefit of looking at what worked and what didn't work in California and Massachusetts. And one of the things that they did in New York was instead of what they did in California, which is leave it up to local zoning to decide, like, if you're going to have anything here, is they precluded that option in the state of New York with this opt-in, opt-out thing. And in California, the result of that was um the i you know when that was happening and i was living out there it was like this is going to be a fantastic thing we're going to have bud lounges and you know in san francisco downtown santa rosa um but because they let it get down to the really nitty-gritty level of local control in in california the the residents there were like that is just not happening mm. and so years and years have gone by and my understanding is that since that rollout in whatever it was, 2016 or so, that there's been exactly one uh, cannabis lounge in the entire state of California, and it's somewhere down in like the L.A. area. So so the irony, of course, is that even without that restriction in New York State, you're still going to be facing some big uphill battles trying to place one of these suckers in a you know residential area, in a like a downtown you know, restaurant area. So for, diff- you know, for, with different levers to pull at the local level to, to try to mitigate against that. And I would circle back to the beginning here and say, even if 
they have to kind of discount the fact that there's all the Shinnecock there. You know that there has to be in the background, like these guys already have more than their share. So let's not really go too crazy in Southampton town would be my takeaway. I don't know. I find the whole thing like very fascinating, but also very, very convoluted. Like there's a, a lot I've, I've, I've learned, but I don't even, I don't think I've absorbed it. I just get very confused about how all the, well, it's all going to work. Well, it is confusing and because it's so complex because you have all of these moving parts. You have to work around this federal stuff with the banking. And you can, I mean, there's a ton of different elements here. That's like, mm. I'm kind of reassured that it's all very boring. <laughs> there you go. It's nice. It's nice that it's boring and bureaucratic because it's not criminal mm -hmm. when it's boring and bureaucratic. Um, that tells me it's made a transition that, that maybe uh, is okay. That maybe it's, maybe we're okay We've, we've found a way to do this and, and do it without a whole lot of societal harm. I think that's helpful. Well, it's truly the case, Joe. And I think the more responsible people you have in this industry and the less of the sort of, yeah, hey, we're going to get high now. This is awesome. The more, <laughs> the better this whole thing will be for everybody. And, you know, the last thing on raising, you want to talk about like the nitty gritty of like, you know, you know, where, where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, like in our part of the world, you know, there's actually a pretty, Interesting question, which is unresolved to date about those uh, uh, Shinnecock Nation um, businesses that are on Montauk Highway, the State Highway. And, you know, I know Jay Schneiderman has raised this several times and said, I'm not really so sure that that should be allowed. Like, you know, you're kind of mm. kind of working it a little too hard here. You're like, right, you're on, you know, you're in the nation still, but you're on. The, yeah. You know, we, I feel I feel like that's that's that ship has sailed. Right. I don't think there's going to be any going back at this. Yeah, but the signage and stuff like that, that they're, they put yeah. stuff mm -hmm. that's just verboten at any, you know, you'll never see that at a state sanctioned um, store, including at the Carvel that Connor wants to do. He's going to have to black out the windows, you know, you have to nope. it is, it is sovereign territory. Yeah. And, and that that's, that's going to trump that I'm afraid. Yep. Well, you know, you, you, you say that, but I, I think about, a few years ago when all those smoke shops were selling brand name cigarettes um and um and and they can't anymore because you had you had new york city grocery stores that that complained because you know people were coming out here to buy their cigarettes or whatever tax free the state came in and put their foot down and said you know you're not going to sell untaxed um marlboros um, or camels anymore so so the tribe pivoted and started selling um you know native american produced cigarettes um but 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 you had some enforcement there and and so it's not totally beyond the realm of of you know um possibility that the state could come in once once regulated um you know dispensaries cannabis dispensaries are, are set up in in southampton or riverhead that, that the state could come in and try to do some kind of enforcement it's 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 entirely likely probably that that will happen i mean i i, I don't yeah i don't know that it will happen but they certainly could and and you would you would have um i think this i think the state's trying to maintain a, a decent relationship with the shinnecock lately I mean, what what everybody can, is concerned about, and it's not just of the nation, and it's not just you know legal pot stores. It's basically the you know children and accessing the edibles and the gummies and stuff that looks like candy, and now you have this you know product that's in a school and it's a gummy, but it's pot. You know, those are really where the rubber hits the road with this stuff, and the town is going to have to do a real yeah. good job 
of convincing, you know, mm-hmm. skeptics here that there's um, protocols in place to ensure that that doesn't happen. And and I think the Shinnecock are, are just as responsible. I, I think that, um, you know, if if they see issues like that, they're they're not going to risk what they've got going on there by by allowing that. And I think you'll have the tribal government will exactly. will step in or at least try to step in and and make sure that stuff's not going on. Yeah, I mean, my impression in good faith of those folks is that they want to not only be uh, charity with the spirit of the law, but with the letter of the state law where possible. Right. Because that's going to serve them. And, you know, the the other issue here, too, is that my understanding is that Suffolk County as a whole is trying to um, or had tried to enact even more restrictive packaging regulations than the state had just because mm-hmm. of all of the parental concerns about, you know, their kids buying. I mean, look, there's products out there that like, you know, you can buy called pop rocks, which are like those pop rocks when we were kids, you know, those candies that crackle in your mouth. Well, you can buy a cannabis version of that. And, you know, it's tricky. You know, that's, that's why, why, why would you want that? I don't know. I, don't, I never touched the stuff. So I don't know. I don't know anything about any of this. I'm well, just I, a guy. I, I don't, I don't either. I was, I was just asking, you know, I'm just a reporter. I wasn't here. asking you. I was just saying, why would anybody want, want that? I don't know. So, um, so yeah, that's the story. And we'll see how this all shakes out. I'm going to continue to monitor these agendas to see if there are other applications coming in and um and we'll start to also sort of tease out whether how serious some of these folks are if they start um jumping in with site plans you know so now that the applications have come in on these is does the clock start for eight the year now it's when they're issued the license okay oh okay so a lot of these will not probably be listed list, they probably won't receive license yeah and some of these places too they're they're casting a very wide net not just in southampton but around the state and some of them around the country so you know in fact the kalisa guy Mm. mentioned that you know they have their eyes on numerous locations throughout the metropolitan area so it's not just us that they're kind of saying hey let's throw a bunch at the wall here you know this is happening and i would imagine it's happening in all communities around new york right now yeah so they're hoping maybe they can find another spot that where they'll get the license if they don't end up getting it out here Exactly. Gonna gonna be a lucrative business. Absolutely. Get in while you can. There we go. Stay tuned. Sounds good. For what's next. Twenty seven speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro providing strong advocacy and experienced counsel to corporate and individual clients for over 50 years. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and 27east.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.